Welcome to Women in B2B Marketing, a show where CMOs, VPs of marketing, and all strong women leaders in B2B discuss their top tactics, strategies, and tips for building high-performing teams, leveraging trends, and ultimately rocking their marketing careers. Made by and for women, insightful for all. I'm your host and 15-year B2B marketer, Jane Sarah. Let's dive in. Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining us today for another episode of Women in B2B Marketing. Today, I'm super excited for our guest. She is the one and only Jessica Gilmartin, who is the CMO of the tool we all know and love, Calendly. We used it ourselves to book this call. But she has the coolest resume when I was doing my LinkedIn stalking. Just I'm very excited to get into your background, Jessica. Three-time CMO, impressive brands like Google, Dell, Lehman Brothers, of course, Calendly. You've also been COO, which we can dive into. And you have owned and successfully exited your own yogurt business. So love that. If you could dive into that, it would be really great. But welcome to the show, Jessica. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. No, doesn't every B2B marketer have a yogurt business in our past? I'm pretty sure that's required. Yeah, maybe in our future after this inspiring episode, right? <laughs> but yeah, tell us if you could tell us a little bit more about how you got to where we, you are today and that path that I just kind of spotlighted or, you know, took little pieces of. That would be awesome. Sure. I think that, well, first of all, great to be here. And I think one of the things that I have always prioritized is learning. So I really love to learn. I'm super intellectually curious. And the thing that I care a lot about is am I learning? Am I making a difference? Am I making an impact? Am I coming to work every day feeling really challenged and excited about the things that I'm doing? And so as you look at kind of my very strange career path that kind of follows all that. So I left, when I left college, I decided to do investment banking. I just thought it sounded, I had no idea what it was, but I thought it sounded cool to work on Wall Street. And I did that for a bunch of years and then realized what I was interested in understanding was what it was like to operate. And so I went to business school, discovered a love for marketing there and ended up working in Adele and more consumer marketing. And then my husband and I decided that we wanted to move out west. So we moved to California and my friend had just moved out there and she said, hey, do you want to start a business with me? And I was like, sure. And so we were very stupid and naive and we kind of thought about the things that we love to do and we're really passionate about healthy uh, living and about food. And we came up with this idea to create our own yogurt business. And it was very, very unique at the time. And we hit it at just the right time. And it was that yeah. massive, massive success. It was very fortunate sold that after a few years that I just had people kind of knocking my door asking, you know, hey, can you help me start my business? Can you help me launch a product? And that's how I totally ended up stumbling into B2B marketing. And that's kind of yeah. what I've been doing for the past you know, 10 ish years. Love it. I'm curious if you don't mind sharing a couple of tips, just what do you think led to the quick success? Because if I read correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, the the yogurt business, and I don't want to butcher the beautiful French name it was. Do you want to say it? Fresh. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely sorry. shouldn't have butchered that one, but great name. I'm curious, what do you think led, led to the success? I think it was just over two years. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It was um, literally from the moment it opened, we had lines out the door. It won every award. It was in national papers wow. and magazines. It was pretty incredible. And I would say the number one reason is that we had a really strong sense of who our target market was. And we, every single thing that we did, everything we built to the cushions and the pillows in the store, to the menus, to yeah. the lighting, to the food was all designed for that person. 
And so it really, really resonated with this target market. And we had every single solitary expert on the planet telling us that we would totally fail for many different reasons. You could name the list of 15 reasons that we were going to fail because we yeah. weren't doing it the conventional way, but we had such a strong conviction in what we were doing. And I think it was a combination of both uh, qualitative. So we were that target market. And so we knew our friends were that target market, but also quantitative. We did an enormous amount of research. And yeah. so I think it's just like bringing that together. So it really honestly was just, I think, really good marketing in the beginning of understanding who your audience is and just building something that was right in the bullseye. Wow. That's amazing. So there's kind of two things to dive deeper in here is one, you, knowing your target audience. I'm sure that's something that is a repeat theme in every one of your positions, and even then, every title that you've held. And then second, I think I find when people are telling you you can't do something, for many of us, it kind of pushes us to make sure we deliver and succeed. Did you find that too? hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. And, and what was interesting is it was all men telling us that we wouldn't succeed because they didn't understand the target market. So our, our market were health conscious yeah. women in their 20s and 30s. And so we had a lot of men that were very, very successful and very experienced in the food industry, but they were used to designing for the masses and they were used to building a product that was as cheap as, as possible and as efficient as possible yeah. to deliver. And that wasn't our vision. Our vision was to create a premium product that we knew our customers would want because there was nothing else like it. And so the interesting yeah. thing that we discovered was you know, after we launched and we were so successful, there were five other copycat yogurt places that sprung up in the next year in Palo Alto alone. Like this teeny, teeny little town, there were six yogurt stores. And within another year, we were the only one left. So every wow. single other one closed because they all did the same thing. They all got the mix from the same place. They all looked the same. There was nothing differentiated about them. But we made all of our own food ourselves. Like we were the only, and as far as I know, we're still the only and yogurt business in the in history to have our own plants. That was a licensed pasteurizer. We literally made it from scratch every single day. And so if you wanted our yogurt, we were the only place in the world to get it. And so I just think that that conviction of understanding who your market is and being brave enough and bold enough to invest in it, invest in a premium product experience. And obviously for B2B marketers, you can think of it as investing in a premium customer experience. I think that that it makes a really big difference and people can tell the difference. You know, we, we yeah. always heard nobody can tell the difference. People can tell the difference. Yeah. Even, I mean, the setting as well, like be, there's the recipe and the, the quality of the product that's kind of paramount in any company you're with, right? The product itself has to be good and have an impact. And so you had the recipe down to a T and it was very exclusive. It wasn't just about profit margins. And then, like you mentioned, the the setup of the space, like creating that environment that people wanted to come to that wasn't just the same that every other yogurt shop had. So, yes, it makes a quality. big difference. And I think from a, that's something that I've always looked for in my career is selling products that I believe in and they make a really yeah. big difference. You know, I just this, I actually don't love to work at marketing driven companies because it usually means that the the marketing takes precedence over the product. And. I want yes. to sell a product that people absolutely love and that makes it really fun for me and really rewarding for me. Yeah. Is that something you've looked for in every position or that you took or created for yourself is making sure it was for a product that was just top notch and people already loved? Absolutely. Yes. I would say there is a couple of, of companies, early, early, early stage startups where the, there was the, the promise 
of a product that people would love. But yeah. it always stemmed from this belief that it was a really differentiated product that I would be really proud to sell. How do you, when you're in an interview process, if you can think back, how do you identify and test out that the product is, especially in an early stage, like you just mentioned for a couple, how do you cool. identify that there is that promise that there there's potential here? It will be a big splash. People will love this. What do you look for? So just to be really honest, I would say that in an early stage company, the chances of you being successful are very slim. <laughs> it is it's a lottery ticket. Yeah. You know, I, and I always think about it and I tell a lot of people who are thinking about startup world. You have the absolute best investors in the world that do this for a living and make billions of dollars off of it, maybe get it right one out of 20 times if they're lucky. Yeah. So the chances of you getting it right are pretty slim. So I think you have to go into an early stage startup with the recognition that you're probably not going to get rich off of it. It's probably not going to be successful. Maybe you will be. It probably won't be, but figure out what you are going to learn from it and what skills you're going to develop and how it's going to help your career. So that's how I would go into it. And the most important thing that I have learned over many years and many mistakes is it is all about your CEO. It doesn't yeah. matter who the other people are. It doesn't matter who the product folks are, the technology folks, the business folks it is all about your CEO at that early stage because they're the ones that drive a the culture. They're the ones that make the really hard decisions. They're the ones that decide how are you going to invest. Yeah. your marketing dollars, they're the ones that are going to be effective or not at raising more money, which is one of the most important things at an early stage. So it, you have to have a good relationship and a good rapport and a good understanding with the CEO. And the CEO has to demonstrate that they value marketing and they're willing to invest in it. So true. That's a really good point. This is kind of top of mind because there's so many people out there looking for their next position, right? Whether they're on the market now or they're they're not uh, publicly, but they're out there looking. How do you identify? So it's great advice already just to focus on the CEO, that they're paramount. What do you look for as signs of a strong CEO that would be, that would lead your company to success at an early stage? It really is just your chemistry with them. So I think mm. every company that I worked at had top tier investors I don't know that that actually makes that much of a difference, to be honest, when it comes to whether a company's going to be successful or not. There's lots of examples of companies that did not get that top tier investment or wildly successful and plenty of failures from top tier investors. So I thought that that yeah. was a good signal. I don't think that that's the case. So I really think it's your personal relationship with that founder, your chemistry with them. And you know, are you speaking the same language? I think that's really, really important. Cool. Thank you. Just good advice there. And to, to pivot back to marketing and what's going on now and your time at Calendly or what you've seen in the space beyond, what do you see working right now? Because I, I mean, I try to touch on this in every episode because 2023 has been such a shit show and the past few years in various ways, ups and downs, many downs. Yeah. Curious what, what you find working right now for growth in any definition of growth, that, any direction you want to take that. The most important thing right now is data. It is all about data. It's all about connecting your top of the funnel to your revenue. So what we've done really well at Calendly is we've actually integrated all of our systems. So we can tell, we can feed all of the revenue signals back to Google, back to Meta, back to all those top of the funnel sources. 
to be able to not just, you know, sort of align on or uh, optimize for signups, but actually optimize for revenue. So I think that that is absolutely critical. It's just super, super hyper-personalization and very, very data-oriented marketing. I think another thing that has worked quite well for us is, is using intent signals. So I think, you know, mm. in, in order to, for us to figure out how to profitably acquire more customers, it really is about looking for those customers that are already in the market, as opposed to, I think before you had to cast a really, really wide net and that's expensive. Yes, that's true. And this brings me back to, I saw a post that you shared on LinkedIn, I believe it was, of the three most underhyped marketing teams. Right. And I thought this was so smart. And it also made me a little, what's the word? I don't even know. Sad, worried, nervous, because I, I have never had two of these. <laughs> but one of the teams you mentioned is analytics. Mm-hmm. And the other two were project management and solutions marketing. Can you talk us through these these teams or roles, depending on the size of the company and why you think they're so undervalued, but necessary on a marketing team? Yeah, that not surprisingly, that post got a ton of engagement. Yes. I did not think it would be so controversial, but it, it when I, I speak to a lot of marketers, I speak to a lot of early stage marketers, I speak to a lot of CEOs, and it, it just is surprising how consistently it comes up that they don't have these functions and they don't understand the importance of these functions. I was talking to one CMO of a company my size and he didn't have a single analytics person and I have a team of five and I just couldn't believe it. And it was torture for him and you could tell that he understood the importance of it. He couldn't get the approval to do it. So for me, analytics is absolutely at its core and I've invested a ton in analytics since I joined Calendly in January. So analytics are at at the absolute of everything marketers do. Uh, number one, because there's no way to make good decisions on how to invest your money unless you have good data. So that's just the basis, which is, you know, we have a limited budget. We have to do a lot with it. And so I don't know how yeah. any marketer can invest wisely without data. Number two, yeah. you know, your, your CFO and your CEO are going to constantly ask you to prove the value of what you're doing. And if you don't have data, if you don't have dashboards, it's really hard to do that. And so you're constantly on, you know, on the back foot because you are constantly trying to prove your worth anecdotally. And that is not a good place to be, (laughs) especially as a marketer. So I'd say like, you know, number one is analytics. Number two is project management. And I had never really had a strong project management function before Calendly. And then now that I have it, I was like, I don't know how I live without it because- You know, marketers tend to operate in silos. They tend to build campaigns in kind of a, a assembly line motion. And it's really frustrating for everybody. Nobody likes it, but it's really hard to create orchestrated campaigns with, you know, the entire marketing team, right? That's really, really hard yeah. to do because they're always chasing people down and, and you just, it, you, nobody wants to do it. And who owns it and who, no campaign marketer wants to chase down and own, a, you know, own the deliverables for a content person. And what project managers do, what ours do that so well is they bring everybody together in the beginning. They make sure that the project is set off to be successful from the very beginning. And they're really a strategic partner. They're looking ahead and they're sort of saying, hey, where where do we believe we're going to have issues? Like, okay, I'm, I'm foreseeing that this is a delay. This is a problem. How am I going to bring everybody together to fix this before it happens? And so they just like, gosh, everything just runs so smoothly here in a way that I haven't seen before. And it's amazing. Wow. So yeah, so I am such a big fan of them. And the final one is solution marketers. And again, like that is not a team that I've worked a ton with before. 
But what solution marketers do so beautifully and more so than anybody else is they just deeply, deeply understand our customer persona. And especially in a PLG motion where we have so many different personas, we have such a heterogeneous customer base. They, you know, we sort of choose the industries and choose the personas that are kind of 80% of our revenue. And they just know them better than anybody else. And so they're the ones that are creating like great web copy, great use cases. They're creating our like personalized onboarding webinars. So if you come into the Calendly funnel and you say you're a salesperson, we could create a whole personalized onboarding experience for you. But the solution marketers are the one creating that content because they know them better than anybody else. Amazing. Do solution marketers, they're their own team that's directly reporting to you or are they underneath the content or just a, a tie to the content team? They're underneath product marketing, which I think is pretty okay. typical. Yeah. So my head of product marketing has, you know, product marketers, which do, you know, the more traditional launches. And then he's got a team of solution marketers. They also, that team also has our customer marketing team. So they're the ones responsible for all of our references and case studies and, and bringing all of our customer insights into the company. That makes sense. So I have so many questions on these three teams because it's it's just Again, I, analytics I've had, right? I agree. That's paramount. You have to. But these other two now I'm realizing or like I'm questioning, do I need those now at this stage, which we'll get into next. But so many questions on the solutions marketing. You may have just answered this because they're under product marketing. What kind of skills or background do you look for to fill those roles? Is it product? Typically, I think most of them have actually come from solution marketing background. So okay. they've started there. I think people that have been in customer success. You know, so really anybody that has deep understanding and empathy for customers. There definitely are some product marketers there, but it, they are not experts in the product. They're experts in you know how jobs are done. So even for our salespeople, so they have to be good writers, but they mm. most importantly have to understand how our product provides value to our customers. Perfect. They connect a lot of dots, it sounds like, between product and the audience and, and just making sure all the messaging is is really hitting their pain points and bringing yes. that to light. So for example, Amazing. with webinars, you know, in, instead of us doing just a generic webinar, they're really, you know, they're the ones, we had this huge growth week webinar. We had 15,000 registrants. We had the same thing with recruiting week. So we have these, these very concentrated webinar series and programs and learning programs. Yeah. And because they understand the sales persona so well, and the recruiting persona so well, they can create content that really resonates with them. You know, so it's like they, you know, it's not just this one hour, very, very basic program, but it's bringing yeah. in experts from the industry on sales. It's really, it's connecting the pain points that our personas have with Cali in a way that's not salesy, you know, but we know yeah. right now the cha huge challenge with sales is, you know, outbound is so difficult. And so they created a whole series on how to be more effective outbounding. Obviously, Calendly is an important part of that. They weave that story yeah. in, but it really fundamentally is about how do you create you know, more effective outbound practices? And they really understand that because they deeply, deeply understand the persona and the pains that they have. Wow. So they must also know who the key influencers are that exactly. would be great speakers to bring in. Wow. Yeah. To have that dedicated time and resource to get, to get so granular. So your content isn't just high level, like what everybody else is doing. That sounds like a dream. It's really important to me as a marketer. You know, I just, uh, it, I cringe every single time that people talk about, you know, content factories and SEO yes. optimization and AI generated content. Like that's not why I got into marketing. Yeah, I got into marketing to make beautiful messages, to be really creative, to resonate with our customers, 
to build brands. I didn't come into it to pump out, you know, 15 pieces of generic content a week. Yes. Everybody's doing that now, right? And just pumping out content and have it creating this factory or, I mean, media companies, everyone says you have to have, right? And it's now some people do that really, really well. And some people are calling it a media fact company. It's really the factory that you're, yeah. you're touching on. So it depends. But it, you almost have to step away from that now to stand out from the crowd, right? Because there's so much of this noise content that's out there. So when you do something that's very deep and connecting to the audience, it stands out. I'm very confident about a crystal ball. I'm going to say that, it, you know, Google is going to start punishing people that create generic content. And, yeah. you know, I, th I think, and, and you already see it. I mean, we, we focus on really thinking about what content is different and unique and what search terms are different and unique. And we focus on creating high quality content that ranks for those. And it's also high performing content that performs for signups and for leads, you know, things yes. that actually generate value, not just a bunch of, not just to sort of have vanity search terms that rank high. That's not meaningful for us. It really is about, hey, our customers care about this topic. And if they care about this topic, it means that they're more likely to use Calendly. And that's what we care about. Yes. Preaching, <laughs> which brings us back. You're talking about like what people care about and track bringing it down to revenue and what brings signups, right? Which brings us back to the analytics team or role that's paramount and super important. I'm curious, data is important for everything and data has to drive decisions to, to know what's working and what's not, to put it super simply. But have you found it getting increasingly difficult to do so with just the state of how things are right now and lack of like with dark social and find where and cookies going away and everything just seems to be going more private and really difficult to to measure more direct traffic, right? And more offline traffic. So how have you been handling that? Yeah, dark social is definitely a problem because so much of what we do is influencer marketing. And we know we have, for some reason, people talk about Cali all the time on TikTok and Instagram. So we know that that's <laughs> valuable. We just can't measure it. So we know, and we know that the work that we're doing significantly influences our organic marketing. We just can't prove it. So yeah. yes, I mean, I think there's a couple of things that we do. So we're, we, we do run tests. So we actually do it internationally. So we run tests where we you know, sort of spend more money on marketing and uh, in one country and spend less on another. And we kind of are seeing the difference. We actually just kicked that off last week. So really curious to see what happens there. Cool. And I think another thing that we are doing, I think, which is really, really lucky is that we have, you know, data science resources and we're kind of borrowing those from the, from the analytics team. So we have a whole list of questions for our, our data scientists around, you know, how can we attribute certain moments in time or certain activities to our organic traffic so we could start to see if there are any correlations there. Love that. Working with the analytics team, does your demand gen or um, content, all of your other teams, do they do their own reporting and analysis or do they rely on the analytics team for as a single source of truth? Everybody relies on the analytics team. And so the Amazing. what the analytics team is doing is they're basically creating, you know, a prioritized list of dashboards for everybody. You know, so what I um, often see and I can't stand is, is these kind of ad hoc reports. My team knows they're going to listen to this and laugh because it drives me <laughs> crazy is, you know, the ad hoc reports where like the content team needs something or somebody needs something. And then you've got this analyst who spins up this report that's used once and nobody looks at it again. It drives me crazy. And so you yeah. know, I say, hey, let's, let's come up with the important reports that we all need to look at 
And if you need it just once, it's actually probably not that valuable. So let's come up with the things that are going to be most valuable to the company and the team. And just we're just going to knock them all out. And so they all have a quarterly roadmap of the reports and the dashboards that we've kind of all agreed are critical to the performance of the overall team. And then our priority is really just getting them out all the time and sharing that. So every week we have a you know, marketing team all hands and we talk about our pacing. We talk about where we are. We talk about these numbers. And because I want every single person on the team to have a really deep grounding and understanding of where we are from a financial perspective, which I think doesn't happen on most marketing teams. Yeah, this is amazing. You sound so organized at Calumny, like everything has a specific place and bubbles up to this and everyone's looking at the single source of truth. It's very untypical marketing and I love it. <laughs> you know, I think it's, yeah, I'm a former investment baker. I can't help it. I, my, I'm a very structured, data-driven person. And the reason I love marketing is that you can have both sides of it. I love the creative side of it. I am definitely not a creative genius. That is not my background. So the strength that I bring is organization and communication and, you know, sort of a focus on culture and leadership and basically giving my team members the ability to do their job effectively. That's, that is my superpower. I recognize the things I'm not good at. And I hire people that, that aren't great at it. And I'm always amazed. I'm like, oh, I would never have thought of that. Like, so, so great. And I love that. Perfect. It's always, I mean, self-awareness is so key as a leader, right? To know what your strengths and weaknesses are and fill in the gaps of the weaknesses. That's absolutely key. (laughs) We're going to dive into leadership more too, but before we go there, one more question on these three top teams that are overlooked is the project management side. So on the theme of staying organized and keeping everyone together and things running smoothly, projects and campaigns running smoothly, do you ever, or was there ever a fear in in working with a team like this that there'd be too much red tape in having no. this organization or like getting things started and getting things going or yeah, just how do you find that balance in it being an asset versus a roadblock? Oh, hundred percent. That is absolutely the thing that I fear the most with having processes is creating, you know, a, a, an organization with, with red tape. I'm an entrepreneur, both by background and by heart. I really like I prioritize moving fast more than anything else. And but it is it is balancing speed with like quality and also effectiveness. And I think there are there are some people on my team that would be happy if we had no process, no Asana, no, uh, you know, nothing. And they would just like meet every day and just go, 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 go. And there are other people yeah. on my team that are like, nope, I need a six month roadmap. And that's what I would yeah. do. And so I think the key is, is like, how do you find that good balance? And I actually yes. think the most important thing is you put something out there, but you get tons and tons of feedback. So I think the the biggest strength of my team is that we're a learning team and we're a learning organization. And every single person on my team is super open to feedback and really eager and excited to be collaborative and to do the best that they can for the company. Like I truly believe I have just the best that. marketing team because they care deeply about the work and they care deeply about each other and they're always willing to learn from each other. So I think you you put something out there and then you get a lot of feedback of like, oh, no, no, no. Like I, I can't wait two weeks for, you know, like, I think we can't have a two week SLA. I need a three day SLA. So then you go back yeah. to the team, you're like, okay, is that reasonable? Maybe it's not reasonable on the current incarnation, but how can we change things? How can we adapt things? How can we move things around so that it is reasonable? So I think this just like constant adaptation and learning and trying things again, I think that that helps us figure out how to 
strike that perfect balance. Yeah, perfect. And this actually brings us back perfectly to the leadership piece, right? So creating this learning team and learning org, how do you do that as a leader? What do you put in place or how do you guide your team to become that learning org? Or is it all about good hiring? (laughs) <laughs> it is definitely not all about good hiring. Good hiring is really important. So I would say that number one is you have to create an environment where people can be successful and feel like they can do their best work. So there's a lot yeah. of things that are in that, but that is like my fundamental tenet is that if you create an environment of, of psychological safety and create an environment where you reward people that do great work, then people will want to do more great work. Number two is you have to create an environment where everybody is accountable. And so, you know, yeah. we make bad hires. And the most important thing is you recognize that and you give them lots of feedback and you give them opportunities to figure out if they can be successful at role. And if not, then you give them opportunities to find find a role somewhere else where they can't be successful. When that yeah. happens, when you release people that may not be the right hire, it gives every single other person comfort that you know, you're making decisions for the, the benefit of the team. Because it's really, really frustrating when you are a high performer and you're working with people that are not up to your standards. It truly is the most frustrating thing and the most demoralizing thing for a team to not have the strongest performers. And so we do an incredible amount of work around feedback and openness to learning and just giving each other really tough feedback, holding each other to high standards so that everybody can rise to the occasion. So that's like to me, the absolute most important thing to create a high-performing team yes, and a learning team. The the final thing that I do is I have codified a lot of the things that I believe make successful marketers. And I posted on that too on LinkedIn around like the traits of successful marketers. And we've created a program that uh, we bring in guest speakers. We bring in people from our team that are excellent at these traits. And we spend a lot of time really focusing on how do we get all of our team members to understand what it takes to be a great marketer. And a lot of these things are around holding ourselves and each other to high standards, being intellectually curious, being creative and problem solving. And so I'm just, I try everything that I can to instill the values that I believe make a successful marketing team. Amazing. I mean, Calendly marketing sounds like a dream work environment. (laughs) But I love that you mentioned this and that first you foster this learning environment by bringing in education, right? Be it internal speakers and experts on certain topics or external. I read, I think it was Cody Sanchez who posted something this earlier this year all about how B players are actually the most toxic because they bring down your A players. So it's exactly, it makes me think of exactly what you're saying. Just interesting because I've always been told in my career earlier that not everyone could be an A player, right? That's just something that has been told to me from C-suite, from execs, from HR, You have to have this mix. And then when Cody Sanchez said this, it just was like a light bulb moment that you're relighting right now that, yeah, B players, I don't think that anymore. And not everyone can be an A player if you are a team of A players that are just thriving off of each other and just growing together. Yeah. And I think also the definition of B players is important. So for example, I have people that are earlier in their careers or people that are doing sort of more standardized roles. And they don't have to be super strategic. They don't have to be amazing leaders, but they have to be really, really excellent at their jobs 
and they have yes. to enable other people to be excellent at their jobs. And then, of course, I've got very senior leaders, and that's much, much, much more, you know, sort of important for them to be strategic and great leaders and really strong cross-functionally. So I think it's yeah. important to fit the person with the role. But if you have defined a role, the person absolutely has to be an A player in that role. And and I very firmly believe that every person deserves to be in a job where they're going to be wildly successful. And there is yeah. a job for every single person where they're going to be wildly successful. And it just may not be this role. And I've seen people yeah. that have, you know, that I've had to let go because they're not successful in my role. And they go on to be really successful in other roles. And I'm still friends with them. You know, I still yeah. connect with them. You know, we still talk and they're really happy. And so, yeah, I think people are so afraid to make those calls and so afraid to make hard decisions yes. about letting people go. But it is the absolute best thing for them because they're also, if they're not successful in their current role, there's no upward mobility for them. And that's not fair for yes. them. It's not fair to keep them in a role where they're not going to be able to progress in their career versus being able to go to another role where they will find I, at When I was at Google, my manager called it finding their sparkle, which I loved. You know, Aww. go to another place and find their sparkle and allow them to be successful and, and, and to rise in their career. So I've never regretted letting somebody go. I've only regretted not letting them go fast enough. And so I don't believe there is such a thing as B players, but I believe that there is such a thing as being in the wrong role. That I love that clarification. And I also love the quote that help people find their sparkle because some roles are just not a fit for certain people, right? And the sooner you recognize that, the better for everybody. Yep. Two th I want to go down two paths here. One is just how do you have these conversations? How do you approach these? And are there any kind of tips you can share for other other marketing leaders out there who have identified this, but having to have those difficult conversations because they're uncomfortable to have, but <laughs> the fact that you keep in touch and that you're friendly with, with people who you have had to part ways with, you're obviously doing it right. So what are some tips you can share? It's horrible. And it's horrible for new managers to do. Nobody wants it. It's it's my least, obviously my least favorite part of the job because I love people. And it's really important to me to have everybody, you know, everybody that I work with, have, I have a great relationship with. So it's, it's terrible. I think yeah. number one is it has to be fact-based. It has to be over a long period of time. So the, and it has to be based upon feedback from many different people. It can't just be somebody's own perspective or opinion. So what we do twice a year is my leadership team gets together and we go through every single person in the organization and we talk about their strengths, their opportunities, where we see their career going. And sometimes we are identifying people that are, you know, that are having struggles. And of course we do, this is not just twice a year, but this is a really good forcing function for us to do this. Other times yeah. we have people that are just struggling for whatever reason. So one thing that I do is, is I talk to each of my leads all the time about it. And I say, hey, I'm going to walk through each of your team members. Tell me about them. How are they doing? And every once in a while, I'll get the, well, yeah, this person isn't doing well because of this. And then instead of what most people do, which is just kind of brush aside, I start to ask, I start to go into the Spanish yeah. Inquisition and I start to ask a lot of really, really deep questions. And I say, okay, so it sounds like X person may be struggling with this. I want you to investigate more. So then the next thing that I asked them to do was sort of go on a discovery process and talk to their coworkers and talk to other people and learn more. And sometimes I'll do it too, is I'll reach out and say, hey, I know you're working with this person, can you give me feedback? If we're discovering that there is a pattern, which we often do, of like the same issues, 
then we document everything and we have that first conversation. And the manager has that first conversation and it's very fact-based of, hey, I've talked to this person, this person, this person, this person. This is what I'm hearing. Do you agree? What you know? What's your perspective? What's your side? Okay, let's come up with a plan together. I think that's really important. I think one thing that is is really important that I always try to do is say, hey, I really want you to be here, right? Like I yeah. want you to be successful. I'm rooting for you and I hope that you're here for many years. In order for you to do that, we need to change these behaviors. We need to change this. And so uh, I think it's really important, again, to create that psychological safety of like, you're not out to get them, you know, you want them to stay. And so making it a joint effort, like I'm here to help you. What can I do to help you? And so then you just have to keep documenting it and following up and following up. It's not about having one conversation, but it's about then, okay, we're creating an action plan together and I'm going to check in with you. I'm checking in with your constituents over the course of the next month. And let's see what happens. And sometimes people turn around and that's amazing. Sometimes they don't. And then it's just, hey, I'm I'm not seeing this change. Like we're now going to have to move to the next stage, which may be a pit, unfortunately. Yeah. And then you just have to be really rigid about following that and really disciplined. And at the end of it, usually people will recognize that it's probably time for them to go. And a lot of times people opt out on their own, which, which is the best result. Yeah. It sounds like you're a big advocate of, I guess, uh, radical candor, like being very clear upfront. This is what has to happen. This is how it is. We want you to be here. So it's kind, but very direct because that helps everybody at front end in the long run. You're not covering up anything or putting something off or holding something back. You're telling them, but in a kind, respectful way. Yes. I had once had someone that works with me say that uh, he actually used those words. He said, you are kind and direct. And I was like, wow, that's like a perfect way of describing me. So yes, I'm, I'm from New York, originally yeah. super direct, but I, yeah, exactly. Um, but I, I do believe the kindest thing that you can do for somebody is to give them feedback. I talk about this all the time with my team members. When I first started my career, I was that person that was super smart and super successful, but nobody liked me. <laughs> so I was terrible to work with. I was like very aggressive and, and I kind of was that person that broke through walls to make things happen. And yeah. the only reason that I figured that out was because somebody was nice enough and kind enough to tell me that that's how people perceived me. And wow. I'm like a super, super nice person. And I was like, oh my God, this is not how I want to be perceived. And so yeah. I changed really significantly because of that. And the exact same thing happened when I became a manager for the first time is I didn't know how to be a manager and nobody gave me feedback. And then I went through this leadership training program where I got all of this really, really really tough feedback. And I completely, completely transformed my life. And I think that that was what set me on my career path. And I would never have gotten to where I am if I hadn't gotten that feedback. And so I think the kindest thing we can do for each other is to be direct and be open and give feedback or else how would somebody possibly know? How could yes. somebody know that they're not doing the right things if nobody tells them? So true. I'm the same way. Maybe it is a New York thing. I'm from New York too. So That's always just, <laughs> I don't hold back. Like you have to tell people in the moment, right? Or yeah. I mean, you can think about it and be strategic and thoughtful in your, in how you share it. But to me, I feel the same way. Like as soon as possible, you have this open conversation so that things can change or they choose not to change. And then decisions can be made that help everybody in the same way. It just makes so much sense to me, yeah, being clear. It is the kindest thing you could do is give them feedback. 
On the flip side, because they're even leaders and as um, heads of marketing and CMOs, you still have somebody who you report to as well. How do you go about collecting feedback yourself? So from that perspective, definitely giving it to your team, but how do you make sure to have the epiphany moment that you had years ago, right? Where you changed how you were interacting with people and collaborating how do you suggest people have those or come about those epiphanies themselves and see how they really are taken? Yeah, I, I think once you get to the C-suite, I don't think you have any issues with people telling you yeah. <laughs> what they think of you. So I don't really true. have to worry about that very much anymore. But true, I do, true. I think one thing that I have noticed with CEOs is they really tend to not have those com- kind of proactive conversations. So I do make a point you know, on it, not every week, because that would be really annoying. But at least, you know, once a quarter, I do try to have those conversations of, hey, how am I doing? You know, what can I do better? What can I do more? But I think most importantly, what a CEO, what what I need to understand with a CEO is what information do I need to give you that I'm not giving you? So that's actually like really what I care about is, you know, what does he need to know that he doesn't know? And what, what is he concerned with? What does he feel like he doesn't understand about what I'm doing? Great question to always ask, right? Because then if they have something top of mind that they were not being direct with (laughs) and can share that, then it gives them that opportunity to make it easier for someone to share that feedback with you. One of the most important tools that I always use is is my team's engagement survey. So I take it very, very, very seriously. It's, It's probably the only way that I actually get really good feedback about how my team is doing. So we do that twice a year and we actually just did it this week and, you know, I kind of like wait, it's almost like when you're, you know, you're like an Academy Award winner and you're just like waiting yeah. whether, you know, or a nominee, you're waiting to see whether this is like my moment at twice a year where I kind of get the real scoop from my team about what they like and what they don't like and what they do better. So I think Love those it. those moments are really, really important for a leader to get a real pulse on the team. I think also from what you just shared and from our whole conversation so far, it's very clear that you practice what you preach. So you're telling people to give this clear feedback to their team and and be direct and kind as well. But you also thrive off of, it seems, this feedback because you're looking so excitedly for this this report that comes out, right? And how do you apply that feedback? Do you you take time and carve out time to review this and make changes? Oh, yeah. I take a ton of time. So basically, I look at the feedback first. I see the areas of strength. I see the areas of opportunity. I look through all the comments. I share them with each of my leads so that they can understand. So I look at, you know, what are the discrepancies in in the scores between my different leads and meet with them to talk about it. And then I come up with an action plan and I'm really transparent. I literally like in, I, I did this at my last company too with, I had a similarly large team. And so I will just be very open and I'll literally show the scores for every single question. And I'll also show all the comments. And we'll talk about it. I'll say, hey, here's the things that I have seen. And yeah. what I, I think what's most important for people to understand is I can't fix everything. Like I can't yeah. magically fix things. And so, but what I do is I want to create the conditions in which people can give me feedback on how we can fix things. And so I really want people to feel in, empowered and inspired to sort of say, hey, I didn't realize this was something that you know everybody feels. Like I, yes. I thought maybe this was just me. But if everybody feels that, you know, we don't have great communication or, you know, and I don't understand our mission, then what can we do as a team to yeah. solve that? Because, you know, it's not just me. My, it's my yeah. team. It's the collective intelligence and power of my team to come up with better ideas. So my job is to be a facilitator 
of that and of these great ideas, but I want everybody to be part of the solution. I love that. So it's being able to, I've touched on this in in past episodes, but it's not being afraid of failing, right? Or identifying an issue at hand and talking about it because it's all about finding the solution collectively as a team. What I have seen so many times with marketers, which I always think is so funny, is marketers like, and I get it, we like to put a positive spin on it. So like, you know, campaign totally fails, but, you know, marketers will be like, hey, you know, we got this result and everybody knows it failed. So all you do is you kind of just look dumb because you're the one who's yeah. not, who's not like yes. acknowledging, even though every single person in the room knows that it failed. And it's kind of the same thing with our culture, which is, you know, I know my team members talk all the time. I'm sure they're talking about these issues. It's just no matter what I do, I can't see everything, right? My team isn't going to tell yeah. me every single thing to my my face. And so they all know that there are these, and I call it culture bugs. They all know these culture bugs. They know that they exist. They're talking about them. And so for me to not acknowledge them, just makes it feel like either I'm completely out of touch or I'm not yeah. willing to help and fix them, which is stupid. It doesn't make any sense. And so the best yeah. thing for me to do is acknowledge them and say, hey, I heard you say this. Thank you for sharing this. Now, what are we going to do about it? You know, I, I want to create an environment where people stay and they love what they do. I mean, why would I ever want to work for a team that wasn't happy? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Like that's my job as a leader is to create an environment where everybody loves to come to work every day. And so if I can fix these culture bugs, if I can create an environment, if I can make it this and constantly improving environment, why, why wouldn't I do that? Yeah. It seems like transparency and open communication and being direct and kind and thoughtful have just brought a lot of success your way. But just happiness. I mean, I'm just, I, yeah. I am personally happier to run a team where people are happy. I mean, it's just yeah. like, it's very selfish. Like, why would I want to run a team where people are unhappy? It doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, agreed. It, everything does just come back to happiness, right? But like yeah. true happiness, not fake surface level, just truly enjoying and growing and finding what, what brings you joy. Yes, exactly. Interesting. I wonder to to wrap up, I know we're at time here, I apologize. What is one thing that you would tell your younger self? I want to say just getting into marketing, but I'm going to go back further. Just getting out there after graduating. What's one thing you would tell your younger self as you're stepping out into your amazing, windy career path? It's very, very obvious to me what I would have done differently, which is when I was younger, it, to me, it was, and, and I think this is very common, it was all about money and title and keeping up with my classmates and taking things because I thought that they would be great things to put on my LinkedIn and things that other people would think were successful. And now what I have learned and what I realize is that it is truly all about doing things that you love and that you're passionate about and that make you kind of want to wake up every day and do. And it doesn't actually matter what the title is or what the size of your team is or what the money is because that stuff will come. And even if it doesn't come, it doesn't actually matter because you need to be doing something every day that you love. I love that. Thank you so much, Jessica, for sharing so many gems. I feel super inspired after chatting with you and I want to go to the Jessica Gilmartin School of Marketing. So (laughs) open it up. (laughs) And as my son comes back from daycare, sorry. Well, thank you so much, Jessica, for joining us. And thank you, everybody, for joining for another episode of Women in B2B Marketing. Be sure to like, share with a friend. And where can everyone find you if they want to connect, Jessica? I'm on LinkedIn, as everybody else is. Perfect. We'll see you there. Thanks. Thanks. Have a great day. 